for three semesters of my college career, I was an education major studying to be a high school teacher. Started off to be a high school math teacher and amazingly enough changed to be a high school English teacher. Now, I don't, I don't know how that happened, but that, that's what happened. And one of the things that was most interesting as I was going through the classes for that degree was some of the educational history, the classes and the teachers that talked about the different theories that went along with teaching. And, of course, there's no doubt as we take a look at the schools that it seems almost each new generation of teachers comes up with a new theories about methods of how to teach and the way teaching should be done in school. And I'm sure that the teachers who are among us could attest to that fact and how much it changes and sometimes goes through cycles and reverts back and over and over again. And some of that stuff, we even see how that takes place even in the church. I mean, take a look at our class. And for the adults, compare them to the way things were when uh, when you were in Bible class. I mean, gone are the days of chalkboards and bare walls. Now we have have uh, decorative visual aids all over the walls and marker boards and, and various and sundry things that we do in classes. And, and basically what we learn is that teaching methods and activities shift and change. And, and we, being a people who are concerned about following what God says, when, when we see those kinds of shifts and changes take place, it causes us to take a step back and causes us to pause and, and wonder, are we staying with the biblical pattern? Are we doing what God said? Are we teaching the way God wants us to teach? And because of those kinds of questions, it's caused me to, to take a step back and ask, well, how did God teach? I mean, if we were going to be at school with God and, and He was the teacher, what would He do? If we were going to go to a teaching method seminar that God was going to put on, and He was going to say, here's how you need to teach my Word, what kind of methods and and teaching theories might he tell us that we ought to use? Well, of course, obviously, we're not going to have a teaching method seminar with God, but we can look at the Scripture. We can go to the Word and see, well, how did God teach? And when we do that, we can take a look at sometimes how God taught directly, sometimes how Jesus taught as God in the flesh, and sometimes how God taught through his prophets and apostles, and I think what we find is actually some pretty shocking things of the, the, the way they taught. I know for me, that as I went through this and started thinking about the, the way God taught, I was shocked. And what I realized about me personally is that it's, as far as teaching methods and the things that God did to teach, to me it was just kind of almost in the background. It's almost like the white noise of the Bible. It's always there, but I wasn't really paying attention to it. In my haste to find out what was taught, I just completely didn't really even pay attention to how it was taught. Man, I, I think it's just very interesting. And I found, actually, I found lots of methods. And I'm going to go through them with you, and I'm just going to warn you. We've got quite a few. And so this is going to be very quick. This is going to be an overview. And I've got outlines that you can study further on your own to look more closely at the passages we're going to reference, because we're really going to be blitzing through this very quickly. But I think most of the examples that we're going to use are actually stories that we're all very well aware of. I don't think there's going to be any chance of anybody thinking I made up a story, so I'm not going to worry too much about that. But I'm just going to warn you, we're going to be moving pretty quick, but we will have outlines on the table in the back that you can study further on your own as, as we find out what it's like to be at school with God. Before we do that, would you bow with me in prayer, please? Almighty God and Father in heaven, we are so thankful for your love and your mercy. We're thankful that, in fact, you have taught. 
We're thankful that you've given the Word so that we might know how to teach. And we pray that you would help us to always keep our hearts and minds open to your Word, to follow your pattern, to be more concerned with doing things your way than with the ways that we think are good. And Father, to focus on what you have said and following the examples that you have set and doing only what you've authorized through your Word. Father, we love you and we thank you so much for loving us. Through your Son's name we pray. Amen. So, what would it be like to be at school with God? Well, obviously one of the methods that God uses is preaching, uh, lecturing, sermonizing, however you want to call it, the idea of one person standing up and, and speaking for an extended period of time while somebody listens. Jesus did that in Matthew 5-7. through 7. Perhaps one of the most famous ways that he taught was in the Sermon on the Mount. And of course, Peter did that in Acts chapter 2, the Sermon on the Day of Pentecost. And then in Acts chapter 3, and we know that Paul did it. So obviously, preaching is a method God used to teach. But were you aware that God also used debate? And by that, I mean debating with people. Jesus himself used the method of debate to teach. In Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 12, we know that the question about marriage and divorce and remarriage came up. And what we actually see there is Jesus going back and forth. Jesus makes a point. The Pharisees make a point. Jesus makes a point. It goes, and so Jesus debates, and we just see a small snippet of this, but there's that Point and counterpoint. Jesus did it with the Pharisees there, and he even did it with his disciples. But he also used discussion. In Acts chapter 15, and of course I guess we could use debate here as well, but instead of it being a debate between the teacher and the student, this was a debate or a discussion just among the students. There was a question that arose about circumcision. And God, instead of sitting down and producing a new revelation just to tell them what to do, He allowed the students, if you will, to discuss it among themselves, to take a look at what God had already revealed and to discuss it. And it says that they had great discussion and debate. And, and Peter gets up and makes his point, And Paul and Barnabas get up and make their points. And James gets up and makes their point. And no doubt... Even though it's not recorded, some of the folks who were trying to say that you had to be circumcised, I'm sure they got to talk. But as the discussion wound down, they came to the truth based upon the revelation of God. But, but what we find here is that God actually just allowed the students to discuss it, challenging them to think it through for themselves and come up with the right answer. I, I have no doubt that if they'd come up with the wrong answer, that God would have stopped it in the end. But they didn't. They came up with the right answer. God allowed them to discuss it and to debate it among themselves. And then we've got questions. Now, Jesus used questions in three different ways. First of all, Jesus would ask questions. In Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 and 15, Jesus said, Who do men say that I am? Well, who do you say that I am? And what's he doing here? Instead of just telling them, here's who I am, he's asking them a question to challenge them to think about it and think it through and try to come up with the right answer. In Luke chapter 14 and verse 3, he asked the question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? As he was trying to question those who would be against him, to get them to really think about what it was they were saying when they say, oh, you know, there's six days in the week that you can come to be healed on the seventh day. You shouldn't do that. He's challenging them by asking questions. Not just telling them straight out, but asking questions and then using that as a method to teach. But not only did he ask questions, sometimes he answered questions. For instance, in Luke chapter 20 and verse 22, when the Sadducees and the Pharisees came up and said, is it lawful to pay tribute to Caesar? 
Jesus answered their question. Or in Luke chapter 20 and verse 28 through 33, when the Sadducees came up with their convoluted question about marriage in the resurrection and they told their story about the woman who had been married to seven different brothers but never had children, whose wife would she be in the resurrection? Jesus answered their questions. And so He allowed them to ask questions and then spent time answering it. And then sometimes He turned the questions back on those who were asking them. This is kind of a combination of the two. He allowed a question to be asked, but instead of answering it, he turned it back on them and and forced them to think about it. He didn't always just answer the question. Sometimes he challenged them, well, you tell me. You tell me about this question. For instance, in Luke chapter 10, verse 25 through 26, the lawyer comes in and says, Teacher, what is the greatest law? And what did Jesus do? Instead of just answering, he said, well, you tell me. What do you read in the law? And, of course, he came back, well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your soul and all your heart and all your mind. So he he turned it back. So he used questions. He also used stories. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 7, when God wanted to demonstrate to David that he had sinned, what did Nathan do? Nathan came to him with a story about a man who owned a sheep. And then another shepherd who had a bunch of sheep. And he used this story to teach him the principle about his sin. And I've heard people say for years in personal work, use the Nathan principle. Tell somebody a story that will get them emotionally involved and then demonstrate the principle from the Scripture. That's what Nathan did. But Jesus, of course, used stories. He used stories over and over again. The parable. He's famous for them, using the parables. And he told stories about farmers. He told, told stories about swine keepers. He told stories about stewards. He told stories about mustard seeds. He told stories about uh, weeds. He told all kinds of stories. You know, sometimes he explained the spiritual point behind the story. And sometimes he just left the stories there for his students to figure out what they meant. But he used stories to teach. I know you see the slide full, you think, oh good, he's over. No, he's going on to another slide. Contrast with error. Now see, I have to share with you here something personally. I know in the past I've actually spoken out against having classes that would talk about what denominations teach or what false teachers teach and then trying to refute it. And I've said in the past, you know, if we just teach the Bible, if we just take folks through the Bible, they'll know how to refute all that error. And, and there's some truth to that. But one of the things that I found is that Jesus Himself would state error in order to refute the error. For instance, all throughout the Sermon on the Mount, He says, you have heard that it was said. And then He stated what the folks were saying, but I say to you. And then He would refute what they said. And so it's perfectly legitimate for us to teach by saying, here's what some folks say, and here's what's wrong with it. We're absolutely allowed to do that. Not only contrast with error, but kind of going along with that, uh, uh, very similar, anticipating hypotheticals. That is, not just waiting until somebody brings something up and then addressing it, but anticipating the fact that, you know, somebody's probably going to make this objection. Paul did this several times throughout the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 1, Paul said, What then? Shall we sin that grace may increase? Now, he wasn't asking that question. But he knew that based on what he had just taught, that somebody trying to twist what he had said would offer this objection. So he anticipated. It's completely hypothetical. It hadn't happened yet. But he's anticipating that somebody's going to say this. So he just brought it out. Okay, somebody's going to say this. 
And then he refuted it. In chapter 9 and verse 6, he says, it's not as though the Word of God has failed. And what's happening there, he's anticipating the objection from the Jews because in that chapter, he's explaining that some of the Jews are going to be lost and some of the Gentiles are going to be saved. And he knows that a lot of the Jews are going to say, well, that means God's Word has failed. And so he just brings up that anticipated objection, a completely hypothetical right now, but he knew that's what they would bring up, so he brought it up himself, and then he dealt with it. And then in verse 14 of the same chapter, Romans 9, 14, he says, what's this? Is there injustice with God? Because he knows this is the objection that some of the Jews are going to bring up. If, if we're teaching this about Jews being lost and Gentiles being saved, they're going to say God is unjust. And so he brings up this hypothetical, this anticipated objection, and then he deals with it before it can become a real problem. We've got shock. i tell you what, God is just very shocking, just in general. Uh, I mean, don't you think Pharaoh was shocked when Moses threw his rod down and it turned into a snake? I mean, that's just, I mean, that's just very shocking when, when the frogs come all over the land. God is very shocking. But Jesus... He was certainly shocking, both in statements and in actions, and he purposely used things that would shock people in order to teach them. For instance, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 29 through 30, he told people that they needed to pluck out their eyes and cut off their hands. In Luke, or excuse me, in John chapter 6, verses 53 and following, he told them that they needed to practice cannibalism by eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Now, brethren, I understand the figurative nature of these statements. But don't you think the Jews who have been commanded not to ever drink blood found it shocking? And don't you think that was Jesus' very point? I mean, folks today get upset when, when a teacher does something shocking. They say, oh, it'll distract from the message. But in fact, Jesus used it to, it was the message, to focus on the message because it caused them to have to stop and say, wait a minute, what on earth did that mean? Why did he do that? And not only did Jesus use shocking statements, Jesus used shocking actions. Don't you think the disciples were shocked when in the middle of that final Passover, Jesus got up, girded himself with a towel, grabbed a bowl of water, and started washing their feet? They were so shocked, Peter refused to let him do it, and Jesus had to rebuke him. Shocking things. Dramatic things. In order to teach his point. We have the fact that songs are used. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, very interesting. If you go back there, God gave Moses a song to teach Israel. And within this song, it taught Israel about the nature of God. It taught Israel about the nature of their covenant. And it even taught Israel what would happen if they disobeyed the covenant with God. All the way back as far as Deuteronomy, God was using singing to teach. Many of the Psalms are teaching Psalms. They were songs that the Israelites were supposed to learn so that they could teach themselves and remind themselves and, and teach their children about God and about how to serve Him. And of course we know from Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16 that singing is teaching because there Paul said, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So we recognize that songs are a method of teaching. This is one I have a real hard time with. Sometimes Jesus let folks make their own mistakes. I struggle with that. This is a hard thing for me to grasp. Because usually what I want to do is to keep people from making mistakes. And so what I want to do is spoon feed all the truth to everybody, step by step, all the way along, so that they won't ever make mistakes. And then if somebody is saying something that's a mistake, what I want to do is kind of squash them into the mold so that they won't make a mistake. 
And yet when I look at what Jesus did, I find out, no, he let his students make mistakes to learn from. In Matthew chapter 14, verses 28 through 31, Peter said, Jesus, if that's you, let me come out on the water with you. Don't you think Jesus knew beforehand Peter was going to sink? Jesus is God in the flesh. He knew all things. And yet he allowed Peter to get out there and make a mistake. And then learn from his mistake about things. Even stronger than that, in Matthew chapter 26, verses 69 through 75, we know that Jesus knew he was going to deny him. He even warned him. He said, you're going to deny me. I'm absolutely not going to deny you. But he didn't stop it. He didn't say, you can't do this. He let Peter go through and make his mistake. And then we know in John chapter 21, he used that mistake to teach Peter. And Peter learned from that mistake. In fact, Peter was stronger for having made that mistake. But I know what problems I have that. I know why I struggle with it. And I know why, I mean, if you're like me, you're probably struggling with it because Jesus also let Judas make a mistake. And Judas didn't learn. And one of the things that I learned from this is that as teachers, we're just going to have to understand. We can't control what the student is going to believe and do. We can merely teach them as effectively as possible and then we have to allow them to make their choices about what they're going to do with it. And if, if they make mistakes, pray to God that they will learn from them, as Peter did. We have discipline. In Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, Ananias, Ananias and Sapphira had lied about how much they had sold their property for. They were hypocrites. They were dishonest. They lied to the Holy Spirit, the Scripture says. What did God do? He disciplined them. He didn't stop and say, I wonder how people are going to think about this. I wonder if anybody's going to get upset. I wonder if anybody's going to bring a lawsuit. He used discipline to teach the lesson. I think we need to remember that. Mentoring. That's the idea of one person coming alongside another and paying special attention and bringing them up and training them and challenging them and, and, and probably all the other ways that we've talked about. And let's face it, the entirety of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are an example of Jesus coming alongside the twelve apostles and doing exactly that, being a mentor to them, being a coach to them, challenging them, teaching them, encouraging them, rebuking them, pushing them. Props and visual aids. Now, sometimes we have problems with this one. We've gotten used to chalkboards and marker boards and overhead projectors and now even data projectors that, that are pretty fancy, or most of us have gotten used to those things. But boy, you get beyond that and you start maybe using a prop and folks get a little bit upset. And yet that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus used visual aids all the time. God used visual aids all the time. In Matthew chapter 22 and verse 19, when they asked Jesus... Can we pay tribute to Caesar? Jesus didn't just say, well, render to Caesar what Caesar's and God what's God. He said, bring me out a visual aid. He said, bring me out a coin. I want to see it and I want you to see it. I want you to look at it and then I'm going to teach based on this. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 6, because of all the problems that the disciples were having with one another and talking about authority and greatness and all those things, Jesus called a little child up to him. I'm just going to ask you a question. I hope, Phil, you don't mind if I pick on you. But anybody remember a couple weeks ago when Phil did his Lord's Supper talk and he had Ryan come up on the stage? Now, you don't have to show your hand, but was anybody bothered by that? 
Anybody say, oh, that's a little bit weird. I'm not sure if he should do that. I hope not, because guess who else did that? Jesus did that very thing. And what was it? It was a visual aid. One of the most interesting visual aids is in Matthew chapter 14 and verse 20. When Jesus fed the 5,000, have you ever asked yourself the question, why were there 12 baskets left over? Because there were 12 apostles that Jesus was teaching how God can provide. And he left them with this visual aid that said, well, God can provide. Each one of them had their own. Not only visual aids, but we have demonstrations. We know from Luke chapter 22 that the disciples were arguing on that final night of Jesus' life about who was the greatest. Did Jesus simply tell them about humility? Did Jesus simply lecture them or did He have a class discussion? No. When we harmonize the Gospels, we get to John 13 and we find that Jesus wanted them to learn about service and humility. And so what did He do? In the middle of the Passover feast, He got up, He girded Himself with a towel, and He washed their feet. Now, brethren, let's not think, oh, that's just Jesus being an example. That's just His life being... That was not just His life being an example. When He got done with that, He said, this was a learning experience. Do you know what I've done to you? Here's the lesson you're supposed to learn from this demonstration that I have given you. Jesus demonstrated the teaching. Acting it out. Learning activities. Jesus used learning activities repeatedly. In Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 20, it's the limited commission. This was not what the apostles were supposed to be doing ultimately. This was a training mission. This was an activity that they were supposed to go through to learn to rely on God, which is why Jesus said, look, don't take a money bag, don't take two cloaks, don't do all of these things, don't go to the Gentiles, just go to the house of Israel, and here's how you're going to do it. But it was a learning activity for them to go through and learn. Matthew chapter 14, verse 13 through 21, the feeding of the 5,000. Matthew 15, verses 32 through 38, the feeding of the 4,000. I think I said 5,000 a minute ago. 5,000, 4,000. Those were learning activities. Do you know how I know those were learning activities? Because in Matthew chapter 16, verses 8 through 12, when Jesus said, Beware the leaven of the Pharisees, and the apostles started saying, Hey, is he saying that? Because we didn't bring any bread. Jesus said, Didn't you learn the lessons of feeding the 5,000 and feeding the 4,000? He said, those were learning activities. I was going through that and causing you to serve those people and letting you pick up the leftovers because you were supposed to learn something from what we were doing there. And then, of course, there's the ultimate learning activity that we go through every week. First Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 26, Jesus said, as often, or excuse me, Paul said, as often as we eat the bread and drink the fruit of the vine, we are proclaiming the Lord's death till He comes. Do you realize that's teaching? As we're doing that, every single one of us are teaching. In fact, we understand that just from the fact that it's a memorial. We learn from the Old Testament over and over again. What's the purpose of a memorial? So that our kids will say, why on earth are you doing that? And so that we can teach them. I'm not sure if you realize that, but every week as we're going through the Lord's Supper, it's a learning activity, a teaching activity, actually going through the motions, being active with something and manipulating it in order to teach a lesson. And then we have the fact acting out a role. Now this one was the one that surprised me to me, but brethren, I tell you, you find it all throughout the Bible. God used it over and over again. We find an example in 1 Kings chapter 20, verses 26 through 43. Ahab had defeated Syria, had captured Ben-Hadad, and then let him go. God wanted him killed. 
But Ahab let him go. What did God do? He had a prophet dressed up like a soldier. Had The prophet had somebody strike him so he could bandage his head and be wounded and come up to Ahab and say, Oh, please, uh, somebody told me to keep a prisoner and I let him go. Please don't kill me. And Ahab said, Oh, listen, no, 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 bite your own mouth. You're going to die. And then he ripped off the bandage and said, No, Ahab, you're the man. You're the one who did this because you let Ben-Hadad go. What did he do? He acted out a role in order to teach. In Ezekiel chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, one of the many examples where Ezekiel had to act out and the prophets did, God said, listen, I want you to take a brick and I want you to write Jerusalem on it and I want you to build up a siege around it. See, we can also use this for props and visual aids. And I want you to lay siege against the brick of Jerusalem because through this acting this out, you're going to demonstrate to Jerusalem that they're going to be laid siege against. And he, he, he acted through that. Then, of course, we might say, oh, yeah, but that's just the Old Testament. But have you ever read Acts 21 and verse 11 when Agabus, the prophet of God, came among the people of God as, as Paul was about to head to Jerusalem and Agabus was going to teach Paul what was going to happen to him in Jerusalem. Remember what he did? He took Paul's belt off of him, bound up his hands and feet to act out the role of prisoner and said, this is what's going to happen to you if you go to Jerusalem. Agabus acted out the role in order to teach. Now, okay, this is the last one, and I know you're not going to like this because we just don't like this. God used testing. In Genesis 3, putting the tree in the garden, was that not a test of Adam and Eve to see if they would really obey Him? In Exodus chapter 16 and verse 4, God specifically said that the whole issue with the manna was to test them, to see if they would actually obey Him. And, and He told them, I want you to take just enough for one day. And what did most of the people do? Most of them failed the test. Grabbed more, and so the next day they pulled out yesterday's manna and had all kinds of worms in it. But except on Friday, they were supposed to take out enough for two days. And some of the people didn't do it because I, we don't want the worms in our house. And so that first Sabbath, they went hungry. But God said it was a test. Well, interestingly, Paul did the same thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 9. As he talked about his first letter about how the church was supposed to deal with the man who was caught in sin, he said, I wrote to you to test you to see if you would obey God. He tested them. I know we don't like tests. This isn't school. No, this is far more important than school. All right, thinking about all of these things. And like I said, I know we move fast, and, and, and I'm sure there's a lot of questions about those things and wondering, did I get some of that right? I'm going to have outlines on the table in the foyer. I, I hope, that, uh, hope that you can take some time to study those things. But I want to think about some applications. Just some lessons. And, and I'm just sharing with you four lessons that I gained from this study. As I went through all the things that I learned about us teaching. Number one, don't be offended at God's way of teaching. In Matthew chapter 11 and verse 6 and Luke chapter 7 and verse 23, Jesus made this statement. Blessed is the one who is not offended at me. And what his point was is he was saying that he knew he wasn't the Messiah that people expected. He didn't do things the way people expected him to do things. He didn't come in and be what everybody wanted. He did things the way that was right. And he says, blessed is the one who's not offended at that. Blessed is the one who's just humble enough to accept me for what I am and do things the way I want. And I just have to tell you, and I'm sharing this with you personally, because just to be honest with you, a couple of those things on those lists, uh, if, if a few weeks ago you'd been doing some of those things in class, I'd have said, that's unscriptural. 
You can't do that. That's liberal. And yet, wow, that's exactly what God did. It's what Jesus did. It's what his apostles and prophets did. It's not what I expected. But let's not be offended at the way God does things just because it's not what we preconceived or were conditioned through years of not even taking a look at how he taught. Let's not be offended at that. And so secondly, that leads us to this point. Don't be afraid to teach like God did. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, you know the passage. Paul said that all Scripture is breathed out by God, is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. What we find in this book is given to equip us so that we know the good works that we can do. And so let's not be afraid to do the good works that the Scripture equips us for. And the fact is, in general, if God did it, it, we're allowed to do it. Now, I understand there are a few things that God reserved to Himself that He does and we don't. Vengeance. I understand that. Actually, sending someone to hell or sending someone to heaven, we don't get to do those things. But if Jesus taught in a certain way, if the apostles and prophets taught in a certain way, we're allowed to do that. And so let's not be afraid to teach the way God did. Thirdly, refrain from spoon-feeding. One of the things that most intrigued me as I was going through almost all of these is that almost never did God, either directly or through Jesus or through the apostles and prophets, almost never did He just spoon-feed people. He challenged them. He pushed them to grow. He taught them with shocking statements that would, would cause, wait a minute, I've got to think this through. He asked them questions. He made them talk about it. He made them discuss it. He debated with them. He told them stories that they had to figure out what they meant. He didn't spoon-feed them. I've got to tell you what I am tempted to do is to try to spoon-feed them. I want to take all of this right here and everything we could possibly imagine we talk, and I want to boil it down into lists and slogans, and mantras, and then be able to spoon-feed you those things so that now you'll know how to answer every question that might ever come up in your life. And yet, very interestingly, that's, that's not how God taught. He challenged folks to think it through for themselves. I'll just say, I'll give you an example. This is a personal example. This is a place where I know I've been spoon-fed and where I have in turn tried to turn around and spoon-feed people. And this is going to be shocking, but I've mentioned it before, so I'll share it with you anyway. But, but listen, i just got to tell you, in recent study about worship, there's this concept of five acts of worship that we've heard over and over and over again as we boiled everything down about worship in the New Testament and said there's just these five acts and this is what equals worship. And yet how many of us have actually been challenged to actually define worship from the Bible? I'll tell you what, it's ever so much more difficult than just saying preaching, prayer, singing, Lord's Supper contribution. Five acts which, by the way, are never once called worship in the New Testament. I'm not saying they're not. I'm just saying we act like, oh, the Bible said preaching equals worship. And it's not in there. I challenge you. Sit back and go in, look up the words for worship, and actually try to define what the Bible calls worship, and then decide what is worship. It's a lot harder than the spoon-fed way that we've always had, and that I've even done, of just, well, here are five actions. If you've done these, you've worshipped. 
Let's refrain from spoon feeding. Let's challenge. Let's push. Let's encourage. And finally, let's keep the main point. The main point. I have no doubt. I have no doubt that this lesson has been somewhat shocking, especially coming from me. With the reputation that I know I have about the way we deal with our Bible classes, because because you guys know, because I try to say it every once in a while, that I am absolutely opposed, and I still am absolutely opposed to any motivating factor in any of the teaching we do that has said, here's what we want to do. We want to make sure we have fun so the kids will come back. I'm absolutely opposed to that. I think that's wrong. That is the wrong motivation. But here's something I learned. All of these things that God did, not one time did He ever do it because He sat back and said, I wonder what would be the fun way to teach this. I wonder what would be the fun way that would cause them to come back. He certainly didn't think that when He told the disciples in John 6, eat my flesh, drink my blood, and cause uh, thousands of them to leave. He didn't, use, he didn't use any of these methods saying this will be the fun way that will get them to come back. He used the methods because they would be an effective way to teach. We have to ask ourselves the question, what's the goal of our teaching? Whether it's in the classes, in, the, in, in our assemblies, in our personal work as we're teaching our kids, what's the goal of teaching? Is it not to inspire people to obedience? Is it not because we want to pass on knowledge to them, get them to remember it, and then get them to act on it? That's what the goal is. The goal is not, we want you to have fun so you'll come back and hear more teaching. The goal is, we want you to listen so you'll do it. We've got to keep that main point the main point. Now, having said that, I have no doubt that some of these things, the people who were the students, enjoyed it. I'm sure that the disciples enjoyed the feeding of the 5,000. I mean, I'd enjoy it if I got to take home a whole basket of food after it was done. And of course, some, I guess I better go ahead and say this. Somebody's going to say, oh, you said a Jesus did. That means we can feed people. Well, I'll tell you what. If you can take five loaves and two fishes and feed 5,000 people just like Jesus did, then I'll say you're exactly right. You can do that. I'm sure that the disciples enjoyed the limited commission. They came back to Jesus. This was fun. This was great. Man, did you see what was happening? Can we do it again? See, the issue is not, it's not fun so it's wrong, or it is fun so it's right, or, or vice versa. The issue is, what is the effective way to teach? What is the effective way? And I understand. I understand that boring somebody to tears is probably not the most effective way to teach. And so we have to give consideration to being interesting and, and developing interest in the students and, and what it is that we teach. I understand that. But we've got to keep the main point the main point. You see, there's a difference between a preacher who tells a humorous story to illustrate a scriptural point and a comedian who thinks he's being a teacher because he drops in a couple scriptural statements in his litany of jokes. There's a difference there. And we've got to remember that what we're doing as teachers is to impress knowledge and memory and to inspire obedience. And when we keep that main point the main point, I think we'll be able to draw the lines properly and to teach effectively. 
We often say Jesus is the master teacher. There's no doubt Jesus is the master teacher because He's divine. He's God. And God is, in fact, the master teacher. Let's follow God's example when it comes to teaching. And let's do what's most effective that we can find scriptural authorization for. Just like God did.